Well, the last time we were uh, together in the Gospel of Luke, we saw that Jesus had a bit of a tiff with one of the religious leaders who was more interested in, um, in, in keeping the, the rules that he and his uh, buddies had made up. Well-intentioned rules, but ultimately misguided rules. He was more interested in keeping those rules around the Sabbath than he was in taking care of this woman who Jesus was quite concerned about. And so Jesus goes after this guy and, uh, and really sort of lets him have it. And on the basis of this, I said, look, there's three takeaways. The first, the first one is this. When we define religion, and I define it very specifically because the word gets used in a lot of different ways, but when we define religion as things that we do in order to earn God's favor, or things that we do that lead us to think that we are better than other people, then uh, Jesus is the most anti-religious person we can ever find because he hates religion. He hates the sort of self-justifying behavior and anything that makes us self-righteous and think that we're better than other people. And so I said, we, um, we really need to lean into the criticism that we find Jesus leveling against the religious people. It's very hard for us to see ourselves accurately. We are so, so wired to uh, rationalize our own behavior. We're, we, we've got such a strong tendency to self-justification that it's really hard for us to see ourselves clearly. And so that led to the third point, which is that uh, it could be that you would be one of the people who would profit by reading some of the more thoughtful critiques leveled uh, against the church by some of the 20th century's leading atheists. And uh, I, I mentioned in particular Freud, Marx, and uh, Nietzsche. And, and said, you know, look, uh, they're ultimately wrong, but they have a lot of interesting things to say in which they are remarkably similar to the things Jesus said uh, 1,900 years earlier. So some of you wrote and said, hey, you know, while well, you're talking about Marx and Freud and, and Nietzsche, why didn't you talk about the more recent uh, high-profile atheists who lined up against the church, you know, Hitchens and Harris and Richard Dawkins and others? Well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, more recently, their attacks were not leveled at Christian behavior as much as they were leveled at, at, at faith itself and the evidence for the Christian faith, which is a very different thing. And secondly, quite honestly, for the most part, Hitchens was remarkably witty and, and wicked smart. He was more fun to read. But for the most part, the arguments that they were putting forward were pretty old, pretty tired, and they were pretty shrill, and it just didn't work for me as much. So, whatever. Uh, we need, it will feel like a bad day, uh, but it will be a very good day when you actually see one of your blind spots, and you realize, oh my goodness, um, I've been full of pride or greed or, uh, again, self-justifying behavior. I really have been uh, blind to how offensive I've been to other people. So, feedback is the breakfast of champions. We, we owe our critics. Um, we owe it to ourselves to listen to our critics. And so we got a little bit of that last week, our last time we were together in Luke 13. Today, we sort of turn the corner and uh, we move into one of the hard sayings of Jesus, uh, a parable that he gives that's really quite scary, to be honest. Uh, Jesus is marching towards Jerusalem, right? He's, he's, he's left 
Galilee in the north. He's on his way down into Jerusalem. It'll be uh, eight chapters before we get the triumphal entry and all the stuff that is going to correspond with that. So it'll be, it's, it's still a while before we get there. But, but in terms of geography and time, Right, Jesus is is coming close to Jerusalem, and there's not. He's just got a couple months to live, so it'll take us 18 months to get through the two months that he has to live. But but he gives a lot of his teaching in these eight chapters uh, that we're moving into, and and what you need to know is that the closer he gets to Jerusalem, uh, the the more the crowds grow, the noise grows, his Q score goes up, and that causes, among other things, that causes the religious leaders and King Herod and others to go on high alert. Um, If you think that today's politics is getting even weirder than you might have imagined it could, uh, it has a long way to go to be as weird as it was in the first century uh, in Palestine. So everything, of course, was operating under the, the, the big umbrella of the Roman Empire, which is just this huge, massive empire, right? And so at the top of the food chain was whoever was Caesar. So the Caesar was in charge of everything. And around this time, the Caesar was considered to be sort of divine in a sense. When the Caesar died, they, they claimed that he became uh, a god. And so whoever was ruling, his son ruling in his stead now, uh, was considered to be a son of God. Uh, which just made it interesting when Jesus, of course, shows up and takes that title, Son of God. So you got that dynamic. Caesar's in charge of everything. He's got a massive empire, and he rules it through a variety of different means in the Middle East, in Palestine, uh, which was the most troubled spot in the Roman Empire because the Jews were always revolting. He had two people working for him. He had a king, King Herod, and he had a governor. Pilate. So Herod and then all of his descendants who also get called Herod because Herod, King Herod the first, uh, named all his sons and all his daughters Herod. Uh, he was a weird guy, killed many of them. Uh, if, if the Herodian dynasty were alive today, they would have their own uh, reality TV show and I would watch it because it just is, it, it is dysfunctional at levels we can hardly begin to describe today, even today. So Herod was not a Jew, not a full Jew, but he wanted to be considered the king of the Jews, and he built the huge temple trying to court the favor of the Jews. So he's reporting ultimately to Caesar. And then also there's this governor that uh, that Caesar puts in, in charge, Pilate at the time of Christ. And Pilate is a Roman, and Pilate has the military to keep Herod and everybody else in check. Pilate and Herod are sort of on equal terms, and they hate each other, okay? And they report it to Caesar. And then uh, under them, you had the Sanhedrin, which was a council of Jewish leaders. And it was made up of two parties, the Sadducees, who were the religious and theological, uh, theologically liberal. Uh, they wanted to court, they wanted to do whatever they needed to do to get along with Rome because it gave them power. And then you had the Pharisees who were the theological conservatives. So the Pharisees and the, and the Sadducees hated each other. They didn't get along. And then there were two other parties out there, the Zealots, and they were the, the rabble-rousers. They were the let's overthrow Rome. You either considered them freedom fighters or terrorists, depending upon your own politics. And then you had the Essenes 
who basically just wanted to go out in the desert and hide out and wait for everybody to kill each other, and then they'd go back in and take over. So pretty much everybody didn't get along with anybody, and Jesus doesn't get along with many of them. And uh, so that's the dynamic that is going on as Jesus is approaching, um, going into Jerusalem. And um, there's a lot going on in this chapter. So um, in verse 31, uh, towards the end, it, it says, at the, at the time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Uh, Herod wants to kill you. Hard for us to know whether or not they were really doing Jesus a favor uh, or this is just an effort to scare him. Um, but Jesus responds and says, uh, go tell that fox. And that word would mean that he didn't think very highly of, of uh, Herod. So he thinks Herod is a conniving, you know, dishonest thief, uh, an illegitimate king, uh, a scoundrel. He doesn't trust him. Go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. And this on the third day is an idiom of that time, which meant uh, I'm going to complete this. On the third day, you would always talk about when are you going to get the project done? On the third day. And it just meant when I get it done. It's out in the future. It doesn't have anything to do with the resurrection coming three days after Christ's crucifixion. He's just saying, I'm coming, and I'm going to get it done. I will, I will keep working until I complete my task. In any case, verse 33, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. So, this sort of means a couple things. First of all, he's just reminding everybody that the Jews have a pretty bad habit of not listening to the prophets that God sends to them. And to be a prophet was often to be killed by the people you were trying to help. Um, so there's that. There's also just the whole big picture of what's been going on in the Bible from, from Genesis on, right? Jesus is the one that God promised back in Genesis 3 he was going to send. And, and everything has been leading up to his death, which will be when he defeats death and pays the penalty and makes things right. So the mountain where Jerusalem is located is where Abraham took Isaac, three days journey, ties Isaac up and prepared to sacrifice him, right? Because that was all foreshadowing the death of another father killing his son, God the Father taking the life of Jesus Christ. And of course, the temple is in Jerusalem, and the temple is where the sacrifices of animals who are placeholders for Jesus have been going on for hundreds of years at this point. So all kinds of things have been happening to where, where Jesus is the center of everything that's going on. All arrows are pointing to Jesus. All arrows are pointing to Jerusalem. And so he says, so of course... I've got to get to Jerusalem because that's where I'm going to die. And then we get his lament, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And it's not just Jerusalem. It's, it's all of Israel in one sense. But, but Jerusalem is, the, is the, the representative. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. You were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I uh, tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which will be, of course, what they will be saying when he processes in for the triumphal entry just days before his death. So there's a lot going on in this chapter. We're looking 
today at the, at the third parable that we find in it, the, the scary parable. There's two initial parables here earlier in the chapter where uh, Jesus compares the work of God to small things that have a big effect. First, to a mustard seed, which grows to be a huge tree. It's one of the smallest seeds, grows to be a huge tree. And then also to uh, yeast, which, of course, causes the bread to rise. And this, these parables would have been a little surprising to the, to the Jews because it suggests that God's work start, it was going to start small and then grow over time. And they're thinking differently. They're thinking that, uh, they're thinking that God is going to send a Messiah who's going to be big and bold and have, you know, broad shoulders and is going to come crashing in and be a military leader and a political dynasty and throw out the Romans and it's going to be cataclysmic and big and imminent. That's what they're expecting. So this talk about um, a mustard seed, you know, starting small but growing big, that's not what they're really thinking. Now, in the margin, let me just say, clearly, uh, we've seen an answer to that. The last couple of weeks, uh, we've been having these vision nights. And at these vision nights, I've been talking about the last year, which is sort of hard, and then looking ahead to the fall and things that are going to happen. And at one point, I talk about our church, but I make a comparison to the church, right? We're a local congregation. There is the church, the big C church, the church, the church uh, that, that spans the ages, that, that is across denominational lines, it's across geography, the, the true church. And I say, the church of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. We got that promise from, from Jesus, right? The, the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. It's going to march. People keep trying to push it down. For 2,000 years, people have tried to push the church down. And the more you try and push it down, the more it just comes back. Uh, like a, trying to hold a beach ball underwater. It's not going to work for very long. So uh, I've talked a little bit about the church. And I say, occasionally, it's worth remembering and celebrating the fact that this little thing that Jesus started here with these uneducated followers, these also rants, right? In the backwaters of the Roman Empire, this little movement that Jesus started has, is now not only one of, it's one of the oldest, but it is the largest, the, the most ethnically diverse, the most, the most geographically dispersed institution or movement or, or order, whatever you want to call it. It's the biggest in the world. So what started as a little mustard seed, has become big and huge. So um, there's, there's a couple parables here that Jesus is, is telling earlier in this chapter, but then he gets to this scary one. Someone asks him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I, do, I don't know you or where you come from. And you will say, wait, 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 wait. No, we ate and we drank with you and, and, and were with you when you taught in the streets. Because this is, this is a, again, <laughs> pretty frightening. The suggestion here in this parable is that there are people who think they're in who think they're right with God, who think it's all good, right? And they're not. That's what he's saying here. I will reply, I don't know you 
or where you've come from. Away from me, you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. So gnashing of teeth, um, it's, it's, we're, we're a little confused as to the exact meaning of this. Some have thought of it as grinding of teeth, but, but I think the prevailing view today is that it's sort of that sound you make when you're mad, when you uh, miss a putt or whatever. Ah! You know, that, that sound, that's gnashing of teeth. I wish I had that back. It's regret. It's remorse. It's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I blew this. I can't believe the situation I'm in. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. And then there's this line here that would have really shocked his hearers. People will come from the east and the west and the north and the south and will take their places uh, at the feast in the kingdom of God. So that heaven gets described as a party, as a banquet, you know, a variety of different metaphors are used. Here it's a feast, and he's saying, people are going to come from all over. Now, these are the Jews, and they're thinking, we're in. We're the ones. We've got a special grant, a special ticket, right? We're, we're good. And Jesus is saying, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth through people who think that they're in, and and you will see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and the first will be last. So this is a uh, passage that has gotten a lot of ink in the last 2,000 years because it's obviously talking about something that's so phenomenally important, right? Am I right with God? to go to the question that opened this up. Do I, do I have any guarantee that when I die, I, I go to be with God? That's, no, that's what's going on here. Now, the word salvation, or to be saved, as it's used here, uh, when they ask him, uh, are only a few going to be saved? It's a, it's a bigger term than it tends to often be reduced to today. We think of it only in terms of when I die, am I going to go to heaven? It's bigger than that. But, but for now, let's just focus on that. Because given all that Jesus has to say about eternal life, heaven and hell, and he pretty much is the only one that talks about especially hell. Everything we know about hell is always from Jesus, tragically. We'd like it to be someone else. Uh, but it's not. Given everything that Jesus says about eternal life and heaven and hell, uh, we really want to be certain we got this one. Uh, worked out, right? That we understand what's going on. So the question is, uh, what do I have to do to go to heaven? Um, Can I know that I'm going to heaven? Now, if you head out and start asking people on the street, ask your colleagues, your neighbors, your, your friends, what do you think you have to do to go to heaven? You're, you're going to hear a bunch of different answers, but they basically break out in, in, in three ways. First of all, you're going to hear uh, what I'll call the irreligious answer. You're going to have people say, time out. <laughs> what do you have to do to go to heaven? Stop it. There is no heaven. right? What you see is all you get. We are just the temporary pinnacle of the evolutionary process, and we're, we're, a, we're a naked ape. We've got no soul. When you die, show's over. There is no heaven. 
move on. Live your life today without being completely consumed by this nonsense. Okay, so there's, there are people, surprisingly few, because even people that don't describe themselves as religious often describe a life after death. Um, but you're going to hear from some people, no, there's nothing. A second, the second answer you're going to hear, and this is the one you'll hear the most. This is the most common answer. What you're going to hear is, well, in order to go to heaven, you have to be good. Right? There's a good God in a good place, and good people, those who do good, will get to go be with this good God. And increasingly the answer would be, this good God, there's many paths to this God, but they all effectively say, the way to go to heaven is to be good. It's the religious answer. Now, I'm, I'm simplifying things because, in fact, though many people say all religions are essentially the same, right? They're the same, they're different roads up to the top of the same mountain. But, but religions, when you look at them, deep down, they're all the same. Okay, this is a, this is a statement that is made by people who have not looked at them carefully. Because what is true is just the opposite. Religions are superficially the same, but they're not the same at their essence. So a lot of religions will say the same things about morals. A lot of religions will say things like, you got to be good. You got to be nice. You should, you should tell the truth. You should honor your marriage vows, right? You should be kind to the stranger. So a lot of religions are similar at the area of ethics and morality. But when you push on them, you see that they, they really have a very different understanding of what is ultimate reality, the nature of God, who we are, what's expected of us, what happens to us when we die. They just they go in very different directions. So it's unfair to say all religions say that uh, if you're good, you're going to go to heaven because most religions don't talk about, about heaven. <laughs> right? I mean, the Eastern religions will, will talk about uh, if, if, you are, if you are good, then you come back and you run another lap with a little bit less karma to work off, and you keep, you keep running laps, new lives, you're reincarnated, given a new body of some sort, and you got to work off the bad, and is, it, when you finally have worked off all the bad, then you sort of lose yourself, your individuality, into the grand energy consciousness of the universe. Um, so it's very different from what we find in the Bible, Hebrews 9. 27 says, in essence, you live once, you die once, after that you face judgment, and then you will go to spend eternity uh, in heaven or hell, very much as who you are, right? You, you will always remain fundamentally yourself. So it's a little unfair to say that the religious answer is be good and you go to heaven because heaven is more of a Christian concept. But um, that's still what you hear. Be good. If you're good, a good God is going to let you into a good place. So here's my problem with the religious answer. Uh, first of all, as I've just tried to demonstrate, it doesn't really hold up to much cross-examination. Right? As soon as you start to push on it, it just breaks down in all kinds of ways. Secondly, um, 
it doesn't, uh, it doesn't really ever help us understand what good is. There's, no, there's no, really no agreement on what good looks like. So if you enter into these conversations, then what you hear from some people is, well, you have to um, sort of look inside yourself for some understanding of what is good. You've got you to appeal to your conscience. Now, I actually think there's some validity to this. We see Paul saying some similar things in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and, and, and following. But, um, but it's, a very, um, it's a very flawed plan because our conscience, um, there's, there's not a lot of consistency across time. There's not a lot of consistency across cultures. There's not a lot of consistency across people. So there's some, but not a lot. Not certainly enough to ever have an assurance that I've been good enough. Now, if you ask other people, what, what do you need to do to... Uh, be good, you hear, well, you gotta, you got to keep the law of God. In a book uh, called How Good is Good Enough, Andy Stanley talks about a conversation he had a number of years ago where he was talking with someone who said, uh, I know I'm going to heaven because I keep the Ten Commandments. Now, I used to hear this a fair bit a while ago, like 20 years ago. People would say, I know I'm going to heaven because I keep the Ten Commandments. And I just learned to start asking, okay, wow. So you keep the Ten Commandments. Great. Can you name the Ten Commandments? Most people could name four. And then they'd start just making up stuff. It was really quite fascinating. Okay, you got to, don't kill anybody. Uh, don't, um, don't swear. Um, uh, God helps those who help themselves, right? You know, and finally I just go, stop it. This is embarrassing. You're telling me that you think you're going to get into heaven by keeping ten rules, and you can't even name the ten. Your eternity hinges on these ten rules. You're confident that you're keeping them, but you can't name them. And then I'd say, here's what you need to know, right? The, 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 the ten rules, actually, there's a lot more than ten commandments in the Bible. And, and nowhere in the Bible does it ever say, nowhere, not once, does it ever suggest that if you keep the ten commandments, you'll go to heaven. And, by the way, Jesus updated the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. And he basically made them impossible to keep. So what you got to understand is that those commandments are there. So we understand that we're broken and that we're going to need help. Um, Furthermore, I would point out on this whole idea of the conscience, and when we would talk about keeping the law, I'd say, and seriously, I mean, I'm sure not keeping them. I mean, I, I don't know about you. I try hard to be good, but I can't even live up to my own standards consistently, let alone God's standards. So um, so I, I just don't think that, um, I don't think that this idea that there's a good standard out there that we are expected to keep really makes much sense. And I would say this, if that was the answer, I would say God's doing a pretty bad job because if there's a good bar out there uh, that we're supposed to we're supposed to rise to that definition, don't you think we'd know what it is? And I remember a few years ago I was in a race, uh, 5K, and it wasn't a big race, but there was a couple hundred of us. And uh, the first 
two miles were fine. And then after about two miles, the course was not well marked. And everybody started running in a different path. And I came in and uh, I actually entered the chute from the wrong direction. And, and they gave me a time and I said, okay, okay, wait, wait, this is, this is, I haven't run this fast, like since I was 20. I said, so I cheated. I, I, I want people to know this is not my time. I don't want people going, wow, that pastor, he cheats. I mean, he cut the course. I said, I'm sure I cut the course, right? And I, I felt horrible about it. And then I discovered everybody else was coming in from every different angle. People were coming in towards the finish line. Nobody knew what the course was. And then I got, I got mad at the, at the people running the course. I go, look, if you're going to run a race, you got to let people know what's expected of them. They got to know the course so they know how to run the race. Well, I would say if, this, if there's a good line out there that we're supposed to keep, it's not very clear when you look across religions, when you look across the spectrum, uh, what that line is. There's not a lot of agreement. So that leads to the third answer. I've said that there are, you're going to hear three answers. The first answer is the irreligious answer. There is no heaven. The second answer is the religious answer. You got to be good. The third answer is the gospel. And um, this suggests that, the, that the, the key, the trick, the secret, the solution is not to be good. It's to be forgiven. Right? That's, that's what we're after. So a couple of weeks ago, I was um, at an event uh, it was called the Global Leadership Summit, and it was held at uh, Willow. And Hybels uh, was telling a story about a conversation that he had uh, with a guy on a plane. And I've shared about being on planes, conversations that I have. So I can imagine this. You know, I've said that I'm, I'm pretty, if I want to be left alone on a plane, then I tell people I'm an evangelist because then they will just put on the headphones, pull the shade down, put the sleeping patch on. I'll be left alone. If I want to engage in them in conversation, they ask what I do. I'm very cryptic. I say things like, well, I do a few things, mostly nonprofits, some leadership development. I write, you know, it's just, just, I'm just leaving it very vague. I, I seldom tell people that I'm a pastor because then I get very patronizing answers. Like, oh, I'm sure that's very rewarding. Yeah, yes, thank you. I, I, don't, I don't know what to say about that. And then uh, people will often apologize. I'm sorry, did I swear? I don't swear. You know, I'm thinking, I, 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 you know, whatever. Sometimes people are mad. They're mad at God, and then they're taking it out on me, and I hear what a, idiots Christians are. It's just easier to sort of not go there. Occasionally I do. Sounds like Hybels did. Told this guy he was a pastor. And the guy's response was to say, I'm good. I'm good. I got this all worked out. So however it happened, they ended up in a conversation in which Bill eventually turns to the napkin, you know, which is what we always use to draw things out on. So you take out the napkin and he put God here and he put Hitler, who's the perennial punching bag down at the bottom. And he says, okay, God is perfectly good, perfectly perfect in every way. There's Hitler. And he asked him, said, so where would you, who do you think is the best person alive today. This was a few years ago. And he said that the best person alive today would be Mother Teresa. And Bill said, okay, well, I've read everything that Mother Teresa has written. And he said, you should know she doesn't think she's very good. 
So when you read Mother Teresa talking about Mother Teresa, you realize she's going to put herself about right there. I said, oh, okay. And so, so give me another one. He says, well, um, Billy Graham. Okay, Billy Graham. Bill says, I know Billy Graham. I was just talking to Billy Graham. Billy, Billy asked me to pray for him because he was feeling a little weak and he wanted more strength to be able to consistently do the right thing. He said, so if you ask Billy, Billy is going to put himself, you know, under Mother Teresa. So the guy says, okay, well, well, where would you put you? Where would you put yourself? And Bill says, well, I'm going to put myself under Billy Graham and Mother Teresa, but, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor, so I'm an, I'll, I, won't, I won't go down with Hitler. But uh, so Heibel says, I'm going to put myself right here. And the guy says, okay. And so Bill says, so where would you put yourself? He says, well, I think I'd put myself pretty much with you. So he goes, okay. So, you know, we'll, we'll go right there. So he said, uh, they're looking at that, and it's silent for a little bit. And then the guy says, am I in trouble? And um, the answer is, yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's what Jesus is saying in, in Luke 14. There's a lot of people that think, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. I got this thing all figured out. I'm fine. I'm a good person. And the answer is, no, maybe it's a little bit different than uh, you might think. So what's the answer? I don't want you to. I don't want you to leave here confused. There were two questions again that 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 were mentioned at the beginning. The first one is, if you were to die today, do you know that you'd go to heaven? This was a popular question to ask people. And uh, in First John chapter five, John, who also writes John's gospel, John says, "I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life." I write these things so that you can know, you can be certain that you're in. So I want to argue that, in fact, we can know. So that leads to the second question, which is, um, what would you say? What's the right answer if God were to say to you, okay, well, why should I let you in to my heaven? What's the right answer? Well, the right answer is, uh, in and of myself, you shouldn't, but I'm with him. I I shared this in a blog uh, a a while back that I I had an opportunity to go to one of the Stanley Cup uh, final matches. And uh, at the intermission, the guy who had taking me. He says, you know, he says, I, I can, um, he says, come with me. I can, get, I can get you in. He says, the owner has a box. And he says, I've, I've got permission uh, to take you back there. So at the United Center, there's a owner's suite and, um, you know, that I didn't know existed, but there we go. And there's all kinds of people outside it that clearly want to get in. And um, we step up, we're sort of weaving our way through the crowd. And I sort of step up in front of him and there's a large guy clearly uh, set there to keep people out. And he looks at me and it's obvious he didn't know me. He's not letting me in. And then my friend steps up and says, what? He's with me. And in we go. Now, the owner's suite at United Center for the Blackhawks is not heaven. I mean, it was fun to go there, but let's be clear. It's a much, much, much 
bigger deal to be able to say with Christ, I'm with him. Right? That's the, the gospel works this way. Right? There are no perfect people. Throughout Scripture, we are told over and over that we're broken and that we fall short of the glory of God. That, that, that our best efforts are filthy rags compared to God. That we just don't get anywhere close to where we're supposed to be. But wherever we come in here, the difference is not made up by our effort of being good. The difference is made up by the grace and the mercy of God that, that was so great that he sent his son to die in our place, to pay our moral debt, so that his righteousness, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21 explains it, that this, we give Christ our sins, he gives us his righteousness, his ticket. It's his good credit, his name that allows us to get in. It's not that we're good, it's that we're forgiven. And the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account. That is what the Bible teaches. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever believes in Christ, whoever puts their faith down in Christ. This is a key verse. This is a key idea that we see over and over. Acts 16, uh, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Uh, in uh, Hebrews, or Romans 10, 13. Everyone uh, who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. So, so that's what I'm going to give you an opportunity uh, to do here in a minute. Let me just note that there are a number of objections when I enter into these conversations with people. The first objection I hear is, well, I just can't believe it's that simple, that easy, that good. Clearly, part of the, one of the hardest parts of my job is to persuade people that the good news is as good as it is. Because we all want to, <laughs> we all want to be religious. We all want to earn our way forward, and we can't. The good news is called good news because it's really good. We're not good. God is really that good. So then some people object, and they say, well, there's no way that Jesus could pull this off. Okay, men and women, the whole reason we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke is so that we come to the understanding that Jesus Christ is not like you or me, right? He existed before time. Everything was created through him. He took on flesh and became one of us, fully God and fully man, but he taught with an authority that nobody had. He did miracles that no one else could do, right? He, everything that we're reading shows he perfectly fulfills the prophecies. He does everything differently than we would do. And then he dies in our place to defeat death. And so Jesus is altogether different. Now, some people will say, well, it's not fair that the other religions aren't also right. That would be called pluralism, and I, I get the appeal. It would be wonderful to say that every religion is right, or to just move from pluralism to universalism and say everybody's good. Those who have a religious faith of any kind, any shape, and those that have no faith in God at all, everybody's good. That would be called universalism. I, I'm only here to tell you, it's not what Jesus is teaching. Right? What he says is there's a lot of people that think they're good and they're not. The door is narrow to gain 
eternal life. And here's what I would say to you. You have to place your bets. At some point, you have to place your bets. It is nonsense to think that every religion is right. It could be that every religion is wrong. That option would logically, could logically work itself out. But it's impossible that every religion would be right. Some religions say there is one God. Some say there's millions. Some religions say you live once and then, then you're judged. Other religions say you, you just keep going until you get it right. Right? Some religions say God is personal. Other religions say God is completely non-conscious. Right? You can't put those things together. They can't all be right. And so at some point, you just have to, have to land. And um, so I, I planted a flag. Many of you have. Maybe some of you haven't. Now, I've simplified things today. I want you to know that coming to faith in Christ, right, placing your faith in Christ and being reconciled to God is not the end point. It's actually just the beginning point. And, and in fact, there is very significant stuff that needs to follow. And if it doesn't follow, we've got issues. As I tried to say over and over, it's not, it's not, it's not that faith plus good works equals heaven. It is faith equals heaven and good works, right? Coming to faith in Christ should be a, 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 a decision that is going to change everything. And you should see changes in your life. So I've simplified things, but I've simplified them to make it very clear. There is an option. The option is in front of you. You can know. If I die tonight, I would go to heaven. Because that's what Jesus says. And what would the answer be? Why should I let you into heaven? Well, on my own merit, I shouldn't be in, but I'm with him. And I believe in him. And I put my confidence and my trust in him. So uh, I'm going to pray for us. And uh, I'm going to give you a chance to place your faith in Christ. I'm not going to ask you to come forward or raise your hand or anything like that. I will ask you to tell somebody, if you do this, to tell somebody before you leave today. But I'm just going to give you that chance um, right now. So let me ask that we all bow our heads. If this, if this is a decision that you want to make, I will invite you to say, Heavenly Father, thank you for your love, undeserved on my part. I understand a little bit more clearly that I have uh, fallen short and that I cannot be good enough. You are too good, too holy, too perfect. I can't even keep my own rules, let alone yours. So I thank you that you sent your son. And Lord Jesus, I, I want to be one of your students, one of your followers. I want to I wanna place my hope and my confidence in you. I want to become more like you. I want to I figure out what that looks like. I'm asking for you to forgive me of my sins and to make me one of your own. And I pray this in your name. Amen.